Please turn with me in your bulletin insert and find our passage of Scripture found in Mark, I mean Matthew 13, two brief parables. And if you've missed the last couple of Sundays, we're in a four-part series on the vital disciplines of, of uh, church vitalization, and we have uh, talked about preemptive prayer. We've talked about basic Bible. This is the third sermon today in the four-part series talking about cost commitment, and next week will be missional multiplication. So let's read the Word of God together, starting at Matthew 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. In the first chapter of his classic book, The Cost of Discipleship, the German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he talks about what he calls cheap grace and then he compares or contrasts it with what he calls costly grace. And he says cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. That cheap grace is baptism without church discipline. That it's communion without confession. That cheap grace is grace without discipleship. It's without the cross of Christ it's ultimately without Jesus Christ. And then he begins to talk about costly grace. He says costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy, for which the merchant will sell all his goods. It's the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. And then he explains such grace is costly because it's a call to follow. And that it's a grace because it's a call to follow Jesus Christ. Above all, it's costly because it costs God the life of His Son and what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon His Son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered Him up for us. And he summarizes that little section by saying, costly grace is the incarnation of God. Now it's precisely because Bonhoeffer builds such a solid foundation in that first chapter of that book that he's able to write over in the fourth chapter words that have become quite famous when he says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. When Christ calls a man, 
he bids him come and die. Now I know that sounds sort of ominous, sort of serious and threatening, but those words help to put us in the proper frame of mind for thinking about these parables that we have here before us in Matthew 13, parables that speak of this discipline of church vitalization known as cost commitment. What kind of cost are we really willing to pay? What kind of commitment are we really willing to have? And this is the case because these parables, as I read them, have two main emphases. The first is the overarching one, and that's the inestimable value of the kingdom. We can't get away from the fact that the kingdom is worth more than anything out there in the world. And precisely because of this tremendous value, we see the other emphasis, the urgency for us to do whatever it takes to make sure that the kingdom is ours. No sacrifice is too costly, no change too much to make, even if it means we die to self. In the first parable, we read that the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found. And when he finds it then, he does what? He covers it up and goes and sells all that he has so that he might buy that particular piece of property that holds the treasure. John Calvin makes the point that this goes against our nature to give such a high value to something that is hidden. Rather, we normally place a great value on those things that we can see. He says the new and spiritual life which is held out to us in the gospel is little esteemed by us because it is hidden and because it lies in hope. In other words, it's seen through the eyes of faith. But once found, this gospel is truly a treasure to those who have eyes to see and ears to hear. And and notice that in this parable, this man is not out searching for treasure. He's not some kind of treasure hunter. We don't get that idea at all. He's just going about his normal everyday business And and while this is a strange-sounding story to us, I mean the the thought that you might find treasure in a field, it was a somewhat common occurrence in Jesus' day and time because we have to remember that there weren't banks on every corner. And if you had something valuable that you really wanted to hold on to, what did you do with it? You hid it in the ground. We see that tendency even in another parable, the parable of the talents. You remember where the master gives three different servants three different uh, amounts of money. And to the servant that he gave one one talent, that servant was afraid, you remember. And instead of investing it, what did he do? He hid it in the ground. That's where people placed their valuables. And they did this on a regular basis and especially if they found themselves in a time of war uh, like the people in Palestine 
often did. I mean, think about it. You hide your valuables. You're chased off your land by a foreign army. You get killed in the process. And one day somebody comes back and what do they find in your field? They find a treasure. This is what Jesus is describing. And this man is not really looking for it. He just happens upon it and then perceives what it really is. And this is when he has a choice. Now in the parables we see only the positive choice in these two parables before us because this is, after all, a description of the kingdom. That's what Jesus is saying. The kingdom of heaven is like this and the kingdom is full of those who have responded in obedience to God's call. But not, obviously not everyone in the world does that. Some people get a glimpse of the treasure, but when it's time for the decision, time to count the cost, they do that, and they decide the cost is too much. I'm just not going to make that decision. I'm not going to be that committed to the kingdom. They may see the value of the discovery, but they would have to do too much to make it theirs. They might have to adjust their priorities. They might have to sell part or everything they own. They'd have to totally change the way that they live life each and every day. That would take time. It'd take hard work and effort, and some people just don't want to do that. There are all sorts of reasons for saying, no, I'm not going to make this part of my life. You see, this is why Jesus says what he does on the Sermon in the Mount. When he says, lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust consume and where thieves break in and steal, but instead lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not consume and where thieves cannot break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. That's always been a hard verse for me to try and figure out. For where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be found. In other words, the heart follows the treasure. The heart follows what is most important in our lives. And if our treasure is the workplace, or if our treasure is education, or if our treasure is the storage unit or some other group of possessions, so that's where our heart is found. Likewise, if our treasure is in heaven, that's where our hearts are also. In the parable, the gospel and its truth is the treasure to this person who all of a sudden is found by. Did you pick up on those words the choir sang a few moments ago? Something about being found by Jesus. I term it that way because obviously this man wasn't looking for it. And we know people for whom this is true. They have not been looking for God in their lives. They've always lived a worldly life. And then all of a sudden they're found by God and they do what it takes to make sure that the kingdom is theirs. Think about Chuck Colson. I know this has been many years ago, but Chuck Colson, who was in the upper echelons of leadership 
for Richard Nixon's White House, who was put in jail because of his part of the Watergate scandal, a man who had pursued power all of his life, and he's sitting there in prison, and all of a sudden he's found by God. And he does what it takes to make sure that he can possess the good news of Jesus. Maybe that happened to you in your life. You know, it did to the Apostle Paul. He's out to persecute the church of Jesus in any way he can. That's how we're introduced to Paul in the book of Acts. He's one who drags off Christians to prison. He's one who witnesses the martyr of Christians. And on his way to Damascus to arrest some more of them, all of a sudden he's arrested from the sky by Jesus Christ. And he sells all he has to possess this treasure of good news and the work of the kingdom, the lordship of Jesus Christ. You know, Augustine was much the same way. He would tried to live every kind of vile lifestyle there, there was. If you read his confessions... He talks about trying to find meaning in life through sex, through alcohol, through all sorts of of pagan philosophies. And yet one day a friend had come over to talk to him about Jesus, about Scripture, and all of a sudden Augustine has in his mind, he hears the words over and over again, take up and read, take up and read. And he looks down beside him, And there's the book of Romans open to the 13th chapter and he picks it up and these are the words he read. Not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy, rather clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. It's a passage of Scripture that described Augustine's life to a T. And instantly, as if light were streaming into his heart, his shadows of doubt were chased away, and those very words he had just read settled the long search for how he would live his life. Now, he might tell you he went kicking and screaming, but it settled the search. Whatever it cost, he would give his life to Christ and would seek to clothe himself with the Lord Jesus from there on out. He makes me think of the hymn, I Sought the Lord and Afterward I Knew. You know, that hymn's in our hymn book. We sing it from time to time. Maybe you remember the first stanza, I sought the Lord and afterward I knew he moved my soul to seek Him seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found by Thee. No sacrifice is too great to live within God's will and experience a wonderful personal relationship with Jesus as Lord and Savior. This is the picture we find in this parable. The picture we find in Paul, in Augustine, and the opposite of what we see in the story of the rich young ruler. 
You remember who came to Jesus one day and said, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus told him some things. Yes, all of these I've done. And Jesus says, one thing you lack, go and sell all that you have and come and follow me. He was not willing to sell all to possess it. It doesn't have so much to do with his possessions as it does with obedience and trust. Could he really trust Jesus as his Lord and Savior? Could he trust Jesus to give him more than he could ever think or imagine? He went away, Scripture tells us, sorrowful because he had great possessions. Do you see the contrast? What does the man in our parable do? With joy, he goes to sell everything he has so that he might possess that field. It's quite an interesting contrast. The second parable is very similar. We read the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now obviously the grace of God in Jesus Christ cannot be bought. It's grace and grace is always a gift. That's not the point in either of these parables. The point is the great value that the gospel holds and the kingdom through a relationship with Jesus Christ. The point is, as James Montgomery Boyce put it in his little book on the parables, if you're determined to have what by the grace of God you perceive to be of inestimable value, then you may be sure that God is more than willing that you have it. You may have it now. The price is only that you be willing to come to God in God's way. And he says that means that you see no righteousness in yourself. And if we understand that we have no righteousness in our hearts, in our lives, then we must see only the righteousness of Christ and trust in Him alone for salvation. If you come to God that way, turning from your sins to Jesus, then the treasure is yours. You know, God doesn't have to be persuaded. He wants all to be saved. That's what 2 Peter 3 says, that God's not slow about having Jesus return to this world. He desires all come to repentance. So God doesn't have to be persuaded. We're the ones who have to be persuaded. So wait no longer and believe today. Obviously, with this second parable, we still have the kingdom compared to something of great value, the kind of pearl that makes you want to sell everything else you have to be able to own it. And in ancient times, pearls were for those people what diamonds are for us today. But notice that this person has been looking for a pearl like this for years. And so when he sees it, he recognizes it for what it truly is. That might not always be the case with some of us here today. For those of us who have grown up in the church, for example, it's easy 
for us to take the gospel for granted. If we've always known and always heard the good news of Jesus Christ, we may not really grasp the value of the gospel and the reality of the presence of God's kingdom in Jesus Christ and through the power of His Holy Spirit. And because this is true, we're not always willing to do whatever it takes to completely sell out to God as we live our lives each day. And yet there are those who show us the way. They show us what that really means. We've seen them in our own lives, those kinds of people, and we see them in Scripture. Think about the Ethiopian eunuch that we can read about in Acts 8. He's been searching a long time. He's been up to Jerusalem trying to find a pearl of great price. He's still searching even on his way back home as he rides along in his chariot there on the road going south toward Africa. And we're told that the Holy Spirit told Philip to go up to this chariot. Now, you remember who Philip was. He's one of the first deacons appointed in Acts 6. And Philip also had the gift of evangelism, obviously, because after some of the disciples were dispersed because of persecution, we read about how Philip's down in Samaria carrying on a great evangelistic crusade. People are joining the church right and left because of his ministry, and all of a sudden the Spirit says to him, go down on this wilderness road. I mean, think about that. God calling you to leave a wonderful ministry to go down where there won't be any people. And yet there's this one Ethiopian eunuch riding along in a chariot, and the Holy Spirit says to Philip, go up and join that chariot. And he runs up to that chariot, and as he gets beside it, he hears this Ethiopian reading the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Philip undoubtedly understood the words. He knew where they came from. It was the prophet Isaiah. And he says, do you understand what you're reading? And the eunuch says, how can I unless someone guides me? And he was reading there in Isaiah 53 what we many times call the fourth suffering servant song. In other words, it's a, a passage about the Messiah and the suffering that He will do on behalf of God's people. It's that passage that says He was bruised for our iniquities. By His stripes we're healed. He was oppressed and afflicted. He was cut off out of the land of the living. You see, this eunuch has been up to Jerusalem to worship, but he can't find a place to belong because God's Word makes it very clear in the law in Deuteronomy 23 that a eunuch shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. This man's been up to Jerusalem to worship, but he can't get in. He doesn't have a family. He can't find that for which he's searching. He's searching, but he thinks it's hopeless until Philip begins to explain to him the good news of the gospel in Jesus Christ. And since this eunuch is in Isaiah 53, now obviously they didn't have chapters 
back then. But don't you think Philip would have said, let's turn over a page or so and find some other words that God says. It's in our Isaiah 56 where God says to the eunuchs, who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. How can you get a name better than a son or a daughter of the living God? I'll tell you how, because of what God says next. I will give them an everlasting name which will not be cut off. Now that's a pun that's intended. An everlasting name that will not be cut off. Think about the good news that would have been to that eunuch's ears to know now that he has a family, that he has a heritage, a name that will never be cut off. And the answer of why God can do that is because Jesus was willing to be cut off and stricken for the transgression of God's people as Isaiah 53 makes clear. And when the eunuch hears all of this good news, that's what he's been searching for so much of his time. And he sees some water alongside the road and says, what's to prevent me from being baptized? And Philip baptizes him right there on the spot, this man who was willing to sell every other jewel in his life in order to own the pearl of tremendous value, the gift of salvation and a relationship with Jesus Christ. And friends, that's what the kingdom of heaven is like. And may God bless us with that same attitude of commitment to Him in this place, in the days to come for His honor and glory. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Dear Father, we pray that You would Give us eyes, the vision we need to see the treasure that's before us. And we pray that you would forgive us for all those times that we have taken the gospel for granted and have failed to think about what it really means to die to self and to take up our cross daily in order to follow the Lord Jesus. We pray that you would give us ears to hear your gospel message unto us and that the same joy that we read about in this text would overflow in our own lives. as we truly see what the kingdom is all about and how Jesus and Your grace have made it possible in our lives. We are thankful for these two parables 
and the good news that they contain and the call that they have for us as well. And we're thankful for your presence here in our midst today. We're thankful for each one in this place and thankful for praises that we can sing. We're thankful for your continued faithfulness unto us and thankful for this good news of the gospel that we not only hear and receive, but that we act upon as well. And so we pray that you would help us as we seek to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you've called us in all humility and gentleness and patience and forbearing love. And we're thankful as always for the work of your Holy Spirit, thankful for the way in which your Spirit has helped us to see this treasure of the gospel, this treasure of your kingdom, this treasure of a relationship with a God who's not only created us but loved us with an everlasting love and the gift of his own son on the cross, sacrificed and executed like a common criminal for our sins and for the sins of the world. We pray that you would forgive us for our sins that sent Jesus to the cross and that at the same time you would empower us to clothe ourselves with him each and every day. And we thank you as well for the way in which you continue to bring your healing power uh, to those who are sick and ill. We remember especially uh, today little Lydia again and pray for her safety and that she might be able to come home from the hospital soon. We pray for mother and father as well, and we give you thanks for the gift of new life once again into the life of this congregation. We thank you also for safe travels that you'll be giving to the ladies coming back from their women's ministries retreat. We pray that this will be a special time of, of worship or has been and, and learning and that uh, you will bless them in the days to come because of that experience this weekend. We continue to pray for our congregation as we think about what it means uh, to enter into a process of revitalization. And we continue to pray that you will uh, bless us as we seek to uh, as we seek to emphasize uh, preemptive prayer and basic Bible and cost commitment and missional multiplication. We're thankful that it just means that we're emphasizing the fundamentals of Scripture that we see over and over again. And so we pray that your blessings would be upon us, that you would give our, our leadership the wisdom and discernment they need as we enter into this process and that you'll continue to uh, help us to grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. We continue to pray today for the safety of our missionaries wherever they're found. Uh, we pray especially for those who are having visa problems and pray that you'll either 
iron out those problems or uh, let them know beyond a shadow of a doubt where you would have them go in the future as they seek to serve you. And we also pray for our men and women in the armed services for their safety. Uh, we pray for our children and our young people. And we pray for those young people who have been taking the communicants class and pray that your Holy Spirit will work into their hearts to help them to see their need for you and your saving grace and help them to know when they should make that decision to profess their faith in you. And as always, we thank you for the way in which you work in the lives of the lost around us and pray that you'll use us as you see fit to make sure that, that the lost hear and know about your love in Jesus Christ. And would ask that you would bless us to that end, for we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We do want to reaffirm our faith using the words of the Apostles' Creed. Let's stand together. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. As we're thinking about this discipline of cost commitment, uh, this hymn came to mind, 303, Be Thou My Vision.
grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you this day and remain with you forevermore. Amen.